His name is Michael Maisie, and he's one of the elders and pastors at uh, Renovation Church in North Syracuse. Uh, Mike, I'm actually going to invite you to come up now because he's in a walking boot, and it may take him five minutes to get up here. So uh, five and a half years ago, a Renovation Church was planted out of Missio Church. Now, prior to Renovation Church getting planted, uh, Mike served as one of the elders and pastors here at, uh, at Missio. And uh, Renovation is one of our closest uh, partners. We go as far as, say, bone of our bone, uh, our DNA, as, as we consider partnership here in central New York. And, and we work so closely together, in fact, that, that one of our elders, Bernie Elliott, also serves as one of the elders at Renovation Church, and um, I get to serve on their advisory team uh, as well. And so we're really glad to have you preaching with us for us this morning, sharing the word. And uh, we're going to continue our series through the gospel according to Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. So uh, I'm going to pray for Mike and our time in the word together this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we are grateful that Mike is here this morning, we pray, as those of us that hear your word, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand your truth. Satisfy us, Lord, in your word and in your promises this morning. We love you, and we entrust this time to you now. It's in Christ's name we pray together. Amen. Amen. Appreciate that introduction, Levi. It is indeed good to be here. Uh, not to embarrass him, but my son said as I was coming up, hey, Dad, make it short today. Uh, and uh, if you've known me at all uh, over the years, you know that it's easier for a camel to fit to the eye of a needle than it is for me to preach short sermons. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, glad to be here. Definitely feel like I'm home in good company with you all. And always encouraged uh, when I interact with the people uh, the, the, the place here, just love uh, the, the setting, and uh, more so just day-to-day, uh, week-by-week interacting with the staff and leadership here uh, of Missio Church, always encouraged. And I mean that in the true sense, not just the superficial sense of uh, that we just use that word. It, it, like, I, I feel more courage to keep going. I feel uh, uh, inspired, moved to remain faithful, all right? Uh, in the world in which we live, it, there can be many pulls away from God's calling on your life. And it's brothers uh, like uh, here that lead your congregation that, that encourage me, give me uh, more boldness to move forward in the mission that we share in Syracuse, New York. And that's a gift from God. I consider this congregation, I know Renovation Church as well, considers Missio Church a grace, a gift from the Lord. Your constant prayers and support and partnership truly does encourage us and propel us forward in the mission that we share to see every man, woman, and child have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. Amen? We share that together, and it is good. Uh, that. And it's my hope this morning that in some small way as we open the Scriptures uh, and, and look at the Word of Christ today, that I will in some way, shape, or form Uh, be an encouragement to you to remain faithful. But as I read and prepared this text this morning, this sermon, and engaged the text, I realized that while I may want to be an encouragement to you, uh, what may happen this morning is actually the opposite, that I might be a discouragement to you. Uh, 
especially if you're here today and you come with your own self, uh, uh, own sense of self-righteousness. If you come with some sort of spiritual resume that you believe that one day God will accept and allow you to enter into glory on the basis of such a thing. I may uh, be disorienting some of you. I don't know about uh, you as you've interacted, maybe in preparation, uh, but as I was preparing this, I was a little disoriented in my expectations of who is uh, to receive the blessing of the kingdom of God. You know that in the particular area of this, uh, uh, this part of the Gospel of Mark, that's what Jesus is doing. He's turning expectations upside down. The disciples are somewhat disoriented. You might be disoriented today. You may be disoriented as well if you find false comforts and hope in the things of this world. You may be challenged today. You may be confronted as I am and as I have been each day this week in preparation. It's my hope today to encourage you, to propel you into further faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I recognize that some of us may be disheartened as one of the main characters of the story clearly is today. So today, Christ will reveal to us truth. He will reshape our expectations as we engage this word this morning, and he will call us for a radical response to who he is and what he's doing. Are you ready? Good. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31. Open up with me. I'm going to read the whole thing. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31, known as the rich young man. Verse 17, Mark says this, And he was setting out on his journey. And a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus, looking at them, said, with man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. The observant reader of the book of Mark, really any gospel for that matter, will see that Jesus is on the move, right? Jesus is a journeyman. He's moving around from village to village, town to town. He's teaching and he's healing. He's teaching and he's healing. It's his rhythm of ministry. And he's doing it from town to town, village to village. He's on the move. He's a journeyman. We see it right there in verse 17. He was setting out on his journey. And you read that opening phrase and you realize that it wasn't just any old movement from village to village or town to town, but there's something uh, more unique about the kind of journey that Jesus was on now. He was on his journey. And if you remember, you look back a couple chapters, you see what he meant by his journey. 8.31, he starts to tell them that he's on his way to Jerusalem and that he would suffer at the hands of sinful men, that he would be killed. And on the third day, he would rise again from the grave. He does it again in chapter 9, verse 30. On three occasions... Here we are in this passage between the second occasion and the third. We see that there's great purpose and there's great destination to his journey. That the journey that Jesus is on is very precise and exact and purposeful. Jesus is heading to the cross to die in the place of sinners and to rise again on the third day. And so he's on the move again, but specifically he's on his mission to carry out the task that the Father had given to him. Not just another walk through Galilee this time, but a purposeful approach to his destination in Jerusalem where he would indeed die and rise again. So he's on his journey, and while he's on his journey, a man runs up to him kneels before him and asks him a question. You see, it's a unique moment in this journey that he's on where this man runs up to Jesus. You can get the urgency of the situation, right? You run when matters are urgent, right? There's something important to this guy, and he's running up to Jesus. Not only that, he's kneeling before Jesus, bowing down. It's a sign of great respect and also all the more underscoring an urgency in this man. He runs up to Jesus while he's on his journey and he kneels before Jesus and he asks him a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What a question that is. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
eternal life. I want you to notice the focus of that question. The focus is on inheriting eternal life. Maybe in one word you could say that the focus of the question is on eternity. So very different than maybe the pressing questions that we face every single day. That's his focus, eternity. One could argue that a question like this is the goat, right? It's the greatest of all time, right? That's all we talk about these days, right? Chick-fil-A is the greatest of all time. We know that, right? Tom Brady, hmm. This question, the greatest of all time, you could argue, based on the importance of what it is focusing on, eternity. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Is your mind even at all concerned with eternity this morning? Is it even close? When was the last time you were asking a question like this? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know about you, but I'm all too often consumed with the now, with the moment. The questions that I typically ask are these, ones like these. Who's going to take kid one to soccer practice while kid two is at guitar and kid three's home alone working on a science project that we just found out is due tomorrow? Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? Question I'm asking, how am I going to get the time to fix the leaking faucet in the upstairs bathroom. How long will the bucket just sit there? Some of you dads know what I'm talking about. Where in the world is my laundry? I haven't seen white t-shirts in six weeks. Some of the things that are on my mind. I did find one in the basement this morning. Someone say amen. <laughs> What's for dinner? When's lunch? I mean, that's like 9 a.m. every day, right? When's lunch? We're focused on the moment. We're wondering, how in the world am I going to pay the mortgage? Look at the credit card balance. How are we going to pay that off again this month? How am I going to find a job? How am I going to retire? I mean, at least that's somewhat forward-looking. But for the most part, we're asking temporal questions. But this guy's asking an ultimate question, a question that we must face, eternity, eternity. But notice not just the focus, but the assumption of the question. What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's an assumption in this man that something must be done by him. That in order to inherit eternal life, in order to go to heaven, you must do something. That's the assumption that he brings to the table. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I think so many of us still live with a religious residue that it's human nature to just assume that in order to, to gain God's eternal acceptance, we must do something. We must obtain certain level of merit that will be acceptable to God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You get the sense that he'll do whatever Jesus says because he wants it so bad. 
What must I do? Just tell me what I need to do. I'm consumed with eternity, and you almost get the sense I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to do whatever is required. And so you see, we can ask the greatest question and have all the right focus, but we can come with all the wrong assumptions about what is necessary to have and inherit that very thing that we're concerned about. So what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus responds to his question with a question. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It seems like just on the surface level that Jesus is maybe making a little bit too much out of nothing here. I mean, good teacher, why did he get hung up on that? Right? Good is just a throwaway, generic word that we use all the time. How was your day? Good. How's the wife and the kids? Good. How's your week been? Good. Good is a generic word that we use all the time so that we don't really have to talk about things that matter, right? It's the generic throwaway word to just get past the the niceties, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And the reader might miss this. This is no generic word at all. But the word that is used by this man is really a term that was unique to the nature of God. Good teacher, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you see, even in that statement... It highlights the importance of answering the first question. That not only is the greatest question of all time asked, but the greatest need is exposed in us. There is no one good but God alone. That who we are matters in the presence of a holy God as it pertains to eternal life. What must I do? good teacher to inherit eternal life. No one is good except God alone, a truth and a reality that we must face today. And it's a truth and a reality that is so countercultural to everything the world is teaching us about human nature. That we are by nature good. If there's anything bad, it's because bad was placed on us. Bad was done to us. Anything bad that comes of us is just the fruit of that. But Jesus teaches something radically different and creates a universal need for each and every one of us. No one is good except God alone. And even that answer points to the source of eternal life, right? That what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you're going to have to deal with God. Because God alone is good. Do you hear that this morning? Don't miss out on this gift of of the word of God pointing out the things that really matter for eternity this morning. Get your mind off for just a moment the temporal realities that you face and look to eternity. And in doing so, look to the goodness of God of God and his nature. Look away from yourself and look to God. No one is good 
except God alone. But then Jesus goes on. And he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He's going to the second table of the law, the particular commandments that focus on how we relate to one another. Love neighbor as yourself. You know them. By implication, do them. Hitting on the expectation that if you do the law, you will live. And this man responds and he says, listen, Jesus, I'm on my knees, I'm before you, I'm blameless. I've been doing all those things from my youth. Ever since I was a kid, I've been faithful to perform the law. And it's at this moment that Jesus looks at him. Not just a quick glance, right? Not just a a passing look, but Jesus looks at the man. The idea is a, a searching out. You have searched me and you know me, right? Jesus looks at the man in a way that only Jesus can, past the externals. Past the self-righteous declarations that I've done this my whole life. See, that's what Jesus can do. He can look into the deepest part of who we are and know us. He can see us in the depths of our soul, and that's what Jesus does here. He gives a look like we give when we look at somebody that we kind of is familiar, that we know we've met them before, or maybe you can't remember the context, and you look at them, you, you stare across the room, and it, and it bothers you. You're looking. Who is that? And you're searching in your memory bank, and you're, you're trying to remember and put the pieces together and really study and analyze and try to figure out who they are. Well, Jesus doesn't have to go to those lengths, but he analyzes, he searches, and he looks, and he sees all the way into the depth of this man's soul, and he knows who he really is. And if there's anybody here today that thinks that they're putting on an air or a facade of religion, of good works, that is somehow going to be acceptable to Jesus Christ when it comes to eternal life, please think again. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. He knows your heart. He sees to the depths of your soul. He understands your lack and your greatest need. And this text goes on to say that Jesus, not only looking at him, loved him. I love that. Jesus looks at him, and he loves him. And he loves him enough to point out his lack. He says that. He says, you lack one thing. There's one thing that lets you down. There's one thing that causes you to fall short. There's one thing that continues to fail you. He says this, go. Sell all you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And there it is again. 
That simple call of discipleship. It's just simple. Leave everything behind, forfeit it all, and follow me, and you'll have reward in heaven. It's simple. If you remember, that's what Jesus has done in calling all of his disciples. With Simon and Andrew, he said, follow me. And what did they do? They left their nets and they followed Jesus. James and John, they left their father and followed Jesus. Levi, he left his post at the tax booth and he followed Jesus. That's been the simple call throughout all of the Gospel of Mark. Follow me. Forfeit all, and you will have reward with me and in my kingdom. That's what Christ calls us to. That's what Christ calls this man to. A total forfeiture of all and a following of Jesus in the hope of reward. The call to follow Christ is one that comes at great personal cost. He calls us to leave it all behind, to forfeit this life in the hopes of the blessings of another life. Forfeit it all and follow me. Really, Jesus is saying, you, la- you have it all, but you lack me. You lack me. You've not joined me in my journey to Jerusalem. You have not Come to me and followed me. So leave that all behind and follow me, he says to this man. And what does the man do? Well, we see that the man who ran up to Jesus with with such urgency and intensity, with such a focus and a desire and eternity, the man who ran up to Jesus walked away from Jesus because in his heart, He loved this life. He loved another God more than he loved Jesus. More than he loved what Christ offered him. The text says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. He was sad. He was disheartened. For he had great possessions. He did the cost-benefit analysis that we do all the time. Here's the cost that he's requiring. Here's what he's asking me to forfeit. At the very same time, he's promising me eternal reward. He's promising me that I could join him on his journey. But as I look at the cost and I consider the benefit, what I have in this life far outweighs what Christ promises me. I just don't see that it's worth it. I can't let it go. And I wonder if some of you here and now are faced with that kind of tension in your heart. You hear the radical, this simple call of Christ, but it's just simply too difficult for you. It's too much. It's too much. The text says his face clouded. He was disheartened. One might think he would Looked like a CNYer between January and April. Right? Just sad. Just clouded over. But I think the metaphor really should be looks like a husband that just found out that his wife has terminal cancer. 
It's like a funeral for him. The idea of giving up that which he loves and values in this life. So he walks away. He had no willingness to let go of all that he had, all that he was. He had his righteousness from the law. That would be sufficient. He had his possessions. That'll do just fine. He loved this life too much. And he would not let it go in the hope of another life. I don't know about you, but I begin to feel the tension myself in this. I feel the tension that this man had. He wanted the best of both worlds. And I wonder if some of you here today want just that. You want the best of both worlds. You want this world and the next. You want it all. You want a tether and a tie to the values and the joys of this life. And, by the way, you would also very much like a tie and the values and the joys and the blessings of the life to come. You want it all. Am I the only one that feels this tension? Simple call. But it's hard, isn't it? This is tough, a punch in the gut. And what we see is that Christ reveals that our works and our possessions have no value in the face of eternity. Our own righteousness, we got to lay it down. Our possessions, we can't hold on tight to them. We got to be willing to let them go, to sell some off and give it away. To rest in the provision of Christ. To trust in his providence and his goodness. And to forfeit all and to follow him. This is so difficult in our American mindset that says that I can have it all. I can have the house, the pool, the car, the fence, the college, the career, the success, the 401k. I don't think any of those things in and of themselves are bad. But when our security is tied to them, when we're so enjoying them that we are unwilling to forfeit any of it, let alone all of it, it shows our idolatry. It shows what we really love. And I wonder this morning if you're being uh, uh, reoriented to a holy love, a holy affection, to what really has value in eternity. It's not your works. It's not your possessions. has no value in the face of eternity. And many of us hearing this may be disheartened, disoriented, making excuses to explain such a passage away. Well, that was for that guy. That's not for me. It's for the wealthy. I'm not wealthy. Relatively speaking, we're wealthy. When you think globally. If you make more than 30000 a year, you're in the top 2% of the richest people in the world. And Jesus goes on to say that it's not just this guy that needs to be confronted with this. He goes on, he looks around and he teaches his disciples. He says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
His disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It may seem easy to us. Live a decent life, be a good person, do the right thing 51% of the time. Surely God will have room for me. It seems easy, but Jesus says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He goes, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? You see, you got to understand that the disciples expected that, that Jesus would surely welcome in the wealthy into the kingdom of God. That if anybody would have a place in eternity with God, it would be the wealthy because those who were wealthy were understood to be people who lived in divine favor in this life, lived in divine blessing. And believe me, we all recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from, down from the Father of lights, amen? It all comes from God, whatever we have. But in their understanding and their expectations of the kingdom of God, they said the rich guys are probably first in line because they're living in divine blessing. And Jesus is doing what he has been doing in Mark, flipping expectations upside down reorienting their understanding of the nature of salvation. That it's not your works, it's not just adherence to the law, insufficient, and it's not your possessions, insufficient. Thinking in that realm, it is absolutely impossible for one to enter the kingdom of God. He moves from difficulty to impossibility. It's easier for a camel, the largest animal in their world, to fit through the eye of a needle, the smallest opening that they could conceive. Not possible. That's why they're exceedingly astonished. They're blown away. And they begin to evaluate themselves. Well, if they can't be saved, if they can't enter the kingdom of God, then who in the world can That's an important question, right? That's what this whole focus on eternity has been all about. What must I do to be saved? I'm sorry, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Who can be saved? Jesus, while raising the bar from difficulty to impossibility, brings us back with a word of hope. And a word that clarifies how salvation is ever possible. How is salvation ever possible for anyone regardless of the size of their bank account? He says this, with man it is impossible. Left to their righteousness, left to their riches, not a possibility to enter the kingdom of God. But all things are possible with God. Amen? All things are possible with God. With man, it's impossible. But with God, it is possible. Salvation. And that even though wealth is a powerful and a very real hindrance to entering the kingdom, and we must heed that warning today. Don't ignore that. Wealth does not have power over the ability and the power of God to save. 
God reserves the most powerful place when it comes to salvation. And if God wills to save, he will save. Amen? Such hope for us. Such hope. With God, salvation is indeed possible. We're faced with the nature of salvation. God does what man cannot do. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. No, but we can receive it. Just like a little child in Mark chapter 10, just previous, right? Again, reshaping expectations. The children are coming to Jesus, and Jesus and, and the disciples are saying, Hey guys, come on. Kids, move it along, play some kickball. Jesus is busy. And Jesus rebukes them. What are you doing? Let the children come to me. Children? Really? Yeah. Such belongs the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Let them come to me. Right? Children? Disciples? Rich guys aren't in? Reorienting their understanding. Right? That salvation is received to those who humbly come with no righteousness, no seeming value. That salvation is something given by God according to his great power to save. So don't earn it. Leave your righteousness aside. Leave your riches aside. And just simply humbly come as a child, poor in spirit, and receive salvation from Almighty God who is indeed powerful to save. Receive it. You can do nothing. You can't do it, and you can't do it. Only God can do it. God must do what only He can do. And so Christ here is reshaping our expectations of eternity based on God's infinite power to save. Right? That's what He's doing. He's calling us, indeed, to follow Him, no matter what the cost, in the sure hope of reward. I'm just going to conclude with the final few verses here. Because they're asking the question, who can be saved? He says, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And then Peter, you wonder if he's scratching his head a little bit, realizing as this man walks away, the sheer contrast of how he's responded to the call. He left his nets, followed Jesus. They left their father and followed Jesus. Levi left the tax booth and followed Jesus. And once again, he speaks on behalf of the disciples. And what does he say? See, we have left everything and followed you. We heard the call. We counted the cost, Jesus. We left everything for you. Jesus says to him such encouraging words for Peter and the disciples. And I think encouraging words for us. And all the sacrifices and forfeitures that we have given up and will continue to give up 
Because we see the infinite worth and value of Christ. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one. There is no one. No one who has given uh, or has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. No one who has surrendered all, who has forfeited all, who has given up much. You got to remember, these aren't concepts for the disciples. These are real people. These are homes. These are lives. These are real resources. A career. A way of life, fishing. He says, no one who has forfeited that for my sake and for the gospel, no one who has done that who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. Jesus is basically saying, listen, what you have forfeited pales in comparison to the blessing that you receive in me. When you follow me, you share in me. You get me. You follow me on the journey. You forfeit all that this world offers you. You get me. And man, that's a good deal. You can't compare the glory of this life with the glory of the life I'm giving you. Take the world and give me Jesus, we sing. Because we know that it's well worth it. The investment, the sacrifice that we make, all the decisions that we've made that don't make sense to the world, Think of the families that have adopted and brought in people into their home when they had no space and no money, couldn't figure it out. They said, yeah, I'm going to give my life for that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up conveniences for that. You know the people that do that. And the giving, the financial generosity that continues to flow from God's people to the church and to the poor. He says, listen, it didn't go unnoticed and it won't go unrewarded. In this life, yeah, you may be broke. You may endure pressure and persecution and great temptation. You may get a ton of conflict from the world because these values are so countercultural to you. It may make your life somewhat of an inconvenience, but understand this, pale to the comparison of what you receive in this life, me, my people, purpose, Peace of mind, peace of soul, a right standing with God, forgiveness of sin, joy in my presence, assurance for eternity. The world can't give that to you. The world can't promise that. They can make you feel better in the moment. They can give you a back massage when you're tense. Somebody say amen. But guess what? They can't give you what Jesus can and what Jesus does give you. When you forfeit all to follow Jesus, it's worth it. It's worth it to leave this world behind. That's what Jesus is saying. It's worth it in this life, and it's worth it in the next. It's a no-brainer 
If you can see in any way, shape, or form the infinite glory, love, and peace, and joy, and blessing that comes from surrendering all to Jesus Christ, if you can see him for who he is, it's worth it. If you can't see it, it makes absolutely no sense at all, does it? So Christ calls us to follow him. No matter what the cost Will you do that today? Are you encouraged to do that today? Are you inspired to do that? Has this story encouraged you to continue on faithfully pursuing Christ, following him no matter what it costs you in this life in the sure hope of lasting reward? It's caused me to reevaluate once again every aspect of my life and it should cause you to do the same. What do you love What do you value? What's important to you? Are you consumed with the temporal realities of the day or are you thoughtful of what's most important? Eternal life with Christ. That's what Christ calls us to. Following him no matter what the cost in the sure hope of eternal reward. You encouraged today? You inspired by this story? I think this story sufficiently does that for all those who see the the infinite joy of Christ. But I don't think it would be good to end just there. It's not just an interaction that Jesus has on his journey with this man that inspires us. Is it not the journey itself that Jesus takes for us that propels us to this life of total surrender and complete forfeiture of everything this world offers just for the simplicity of enjoying Christ and following him. Isn't Jesus his person and his work that is ultimately what encourages us, what inspires us? You see, Christ does not call us down a path that he has not already paved for us. Amen? That Jesus continued this journey and he had an unshakable focus to obey the Father. And that focus led him all the way to Golgotha where he endured a painful, gruesome death on behalf of sinners. And he was the only one that was good the only one that truly kept the law from his youth, who was the sufficient payment for our sin so that he might be the very foundation of giving us the hope of eternal life. It was his death and his resurrection that he invites us in, right? We join him on the journey. Where do we go? We go to our own death the death of an old life, into our new life, a resurrection that takes place. As we're united to him in his death and resurrection by faith. Christ indeed paved the path that he calls us to walk on and we follow him there. He endures it for us to save us, to give us the righteousness and eternal security that we both need and desire. So let Christ be your motive. 
Let Christ be your example. Let Christ be your Savior this morning. And follow Him, no matter what the cost, in the sure hope of eternal reward. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we confess that in many ways, in the world in which we live, these words can be disheartening and disorienting. We praise you that you have revealed to us that our works and our righteousness never have any value in the face of eternity. We praise you that it was your work in your righteousness that was provided to us through your finished work on the cross and resurrection that gives us all hope and basis for knowing you, enjoying you, and living with you eternally in your kingdom. Oh God, I pray that if there's anybody here today that is holding on to this world that they would let it go, that they would forfeit all and follow you. I pray that if there's anybody here today that is too much enjoying the comforts of this life and is tempted to rest in them, I pray that they would repent, that they would turn to you. And I pray that each and every one of the people here would fully and wholly trust in you for their salvation and for their eternal life. Oh God, we pray that you would encourage us by your spirit to walk more faithfully in the mission and the life that you've called us to. We ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.